If you have a Bible, I hope you'll open it to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read two or three verses. You know, it would really help me if the house lights were up. I don't know if that's against the rules, but I really like to see people that I'm talking to. Um, Matthew 10 is a place where people have stumbled over what they would call the egomania of Jesus. And the title of my message is trying to overcome an obstacle to faith in Christ, namely that Jesus is an egomaniac. So that's why I'm looking at this text with you. This is Matthew 10, 37 following. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, this is Jesus talking, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that everyone in this room will feel the force of the criticism of Jesus. You're an egomaniac. And we'll find in the text, in the scriptures, in this message, that he's not. And that what people are really seeing is the best news in all the world. I ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Eric Reese is a professor of English at the University of Kentucky. He published a book a few years ago called The American Gospel on Family History and the Kingdom of God. He did a radio interview on NPR, which I listened to, and he said something in that book and in that interview that made me preach this message, and I want to read it to you. He grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. I did too. He rejected his. I loved mine. I love it to this day. My father was the happiest man I've ever known. And I wasn't about to throw away the gift of the faith he imparted to me. So when he was being interviewed on the radio, he was drawn to page 28 of his book. And on that page, he quoted Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And after quoting that, he says, quote, Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? And, and the interviewer on the radio said, Would you like to elaborate on that? And here's what he said. Well, it just struck me as, Who is this person? speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him, who we really are incapable emotionally of loving, more so than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed incredibly egomaniacal to me. So here's Jesus saying, if you love mother or father or son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a follower of mine. I can't be your Savior if you don't love me more than you love everything. 
And you have Eric Ries saying, that's an egomaniac talking. So the word is pretty clear, isn't it? Egomaniac. Someone, this is a dictionary definition, someone who displays excessive selfishness and self-centeredness. Now, if Eric Reese were the only person who stumbled over this apparent egomania of Jesus, I wouldn't bother you with it. But he's not the only one. Not by a long shot. Let's take C.S. Lewis as an example. If you, in your schooling, have not yet met C.S. Lewis, God willing, you will, a brilliant, creative, courageous defender of the Christian faith. He died about 70 years ago, professor of, of uh, English at the University of Oxford, and he was very, very slow to come to Christ. He was 29 when he became a Christian, and he explains the obstacle, one of them, that was getting in his way, keeping him from being a Christian in his book. He explains this obstacle in the Reflections on the Psalms, namely that when he read the Psalms, it sounded like in these continual commands, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. He said it sounded to him like the craving for our worship of a vain woman wanting compliments. So he stumbled over the very same thing, namely God's self-exaltation, Jesus' self-exaltation. One called it egomania, one called it the craving for compliments. Or consider Oprah Winfrey. Why did Oprah Winfrey walk away from traditional Christianity, which she did? You can go to YouTube, just go there and look it up, Oprah Winfrey testimony or something like that. So I did, and, and uh, she, was, she describes how she was sitting in a worship service, and something happened, and, and she, it drove her out. Here's what happened. She was listening to a pastor talk about the attributes of God. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And here's what she wrote, or what she said on the YouTube. Then he said, the pastor, then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28. And I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. Because I believe that God is love. And that God is in all things. Close quote. Huh. It says in Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God demands your 
worship. And if you don't give him the worship that belongs to him, he's jealous. That's mine. What you're giving to that other thing, that's mine. It belongs to me. If my wife, who I've been married to for 54 years, gave away her affection that belongs to me, I'd be jealous. Rightly. That belongs to me, Noel. I'm your husband. It doesn't belong to anybody else. There's evil jealousy and good jealousy. Deuteronomy 4.24 For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And Oprah Winfrey walked away because that sounds like God is an egomaniac. One more example. Brad Pitt, the actor. He did an interview with Parade Magazine and you hear how he stumbled over the self-exalting God and never came back, as far as I know. He grew up in a Southern Baptist home, like me and many of you. And then it seemed to work for a while, like it's working for you at age 15 or 18. And then it didn't work anymore. And he's gone. And one of the reasons I'm preaching to you is, God, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you at age 18 or 20 or 25 to just walk away. It will be your destruction if you walk away. So here's what he, he said. Quote, religion works. I know there's comfort here, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and uh, tell you there's something bigger than you and it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. And I grew up believing in it. And it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was. But it didn't last for me. Now, why not, Brad Pitt? Why not? And he points to the ego of God. Here's what he said. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you won't get it. It seemed to be about ego, he writes. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. Eric Reese, C.S. Lewis, Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt, and maybe some of you and thousands of others have turned away or are thinking about turning away from the God of the Bible because he's just too self-exalting and away from Christ because he's just too self 
exalting, too self-centered, too ego-maniacal. I don't think we're talking about something marginal here. It's not small, it's not a little tricky opposition to the faith. I think it touches on the very center of Christianity. And you might respond to that by saying, I thought the center was Christ crucified for sinners and risen triumphant over death. I thought that was the center, and it is. You'd be absolutely right. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's true. But the amazing thing is that the, the intersection between God's apparent egomania, praise me, worship me, love me above all, that apparent egomania intersects with human sin. I'm the center. I'm God. I want to be praised. I want to be admired. I want to be the center. That intersection happens most powerfully, both in its indictment and its resolution at the cross. So we're not dealing with something marginal here when we talk about the accusation of Jesus as an egomaniac. Now, I didn't face this issue until I was 23 years old. And I would hope that you will face it sooner if you're younger than that. That was 54 years ago, in case you're wondering. Um, Grew up in a Christian home, Greenville, South Carolina, Southern Baptist Church. And my mother and father, whom I love to death, and they are both gone now, um, made sure that I knew and that at the center of my life was 1 Corinthians 10, 31. My mother, even when I went off to college, would write me over and over again and, and end her letters, Johnny, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, son, do all to the glory of God. From, from the, my first consciousness to this very day, the ringing message of my parents were, you live for the glory of God, son. You live for the glory of God. It's not about you. It's about him. That was absolutely right. And I never doubted it, never left it. Love it to this day. That's an important verse. Don't get much more important. But I never heard, in 23 years, I never heard anyone say, God lives for the glory of God. Never. Nobody ever said that to me. And then, at age 23, I read a New England pastor named Jonathan Edwards, 250 years ago, a little book called The End or Goal for Which God Created the World. Everything changed. I didn't abandon most of my truth 
that I was taught, it, everything just got rearranged. <laughs> like, whoa, my universe is just being utterly changed because text after text, I mean, page after page after page of Bible text showing God does absolutely everything He does for His own glory. You can hardly read a page of the Bible without seeing the God-centeredness of God. I wonder if you've ever even heard a phrase like that. The God-centeredness of God. That's just totally natural for me in that little school that I'm part of. It's like the God-centeredness of God. The Christ-exalting heart of Jesus. But nobody ever said that to me, that God's pervasive God-centeredness is all over the Bible. And what became clear to me, and I, I think um, it's the case for many Christians today, that uh, we think it is good for us to be God-centered, but not good for God to be God-centered. And it's good for us to be Christ-exalting, but it's not good for Christ to be Christ-exalting. Why is that? I have found in my own life, and this, this is one of the most, I just don't know how to overemphasize how important this test is that the Lord gave me when I was 23, and I've, I've, I've taken this test from the Lord a hundred times. The test is, is my God-centeredness Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God from the time I was little. Is my God-centeredness real? Do I, here's the test, do I rejoice in God's unwavering commitment to hold up and display His glory? Or does that stick in my craw like it did Brad Pitt, Oprah Winfrey? The stick in my craw. I don't like that. I don't like God's God-centeredness. I don't like Christ's Christ-exalting disposition. I think I should be God-centered. He shouldn't be God-centered. I should be Christ-exalting. He should not be Christ-exalting. I don't like it. If that's the case, I'm failing the test of my own God-centeredness. I really am. It's being exposed for something it's not. It's like me saying, well, I'll be God-centered as long as God is me-centered because then my God-centeredness is a cloak for me-centeredness. That's a devastating. I mean, I, I was talking to a young woman one time and I've never been more verbally assaulted in my living room than a, a young woman who just went ballistic at that thought. She hated being tested like that. So I, I get the opposition of those who have walked away 
from God's God-centeredness or Jesus egomania. The crucial question is, does my resistance, does my resistance, instead of my joy, does my resistance to God's God-centeredness reveal my my supposed God-centeredness is really me-centeredness because I have a God who centers on me. Millions of people are like that. Which is why I like to drop this message into a conference and just see things boil. <laughs> because if you walk in here as a me-centered Christian who loves worship music, you know, and you bristle at the thought that it's not about you and that God exists for the glory of God, Christ exists for the exaltation of Christ. If you bristle at that, you're being exposed. You are being exposed. Reading the Bible with those eyes that Edwards helped open, um, I began to see that Eric Reese and C.S. Lewis and Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt were seeing something. They really were seeing something that I hadn't seen. They hated it. I love it. That's what I'm talking about it. God really is radically devoted. He really is radically devoted to being exalted by his people. He is radically devoted to being exalted above all things by his people. Yes, he is. So is Christ. Being exalted as the supreme value of the universe. So here's a sampling from what I saw in Edwards as he directed me to the Bible. You, know, you should get your theology from the Bible, not from Piper, not from Edwards, or any other human being, but from the Bible. Here's a few passages. Just let them... Let them land. These are samples of dozens and dozens more. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. You all are created for the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful to be able to know why you exist? Here's what it says. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. This is so great for me to stand here in front of people I don't know at all and be absolutely certain why you exist. I know why you exist. For the glory of God. You're either going to glorify His wrath in hell or His grace in heaven. You will not escape this. You might like to say, well, I don't want to be that. Well, you got no choice. He's God. You're not. You exist created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. He elects, chooses Israel for his glory. Listen to Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. I chose Israel that they might be for me a name, a praise, a glory. When I'm standing out here while we're singing just a minute ago, that's the text I'm praying. Oh God, please. That's what I'm here for. Make me a name, a praise, 
an honor to Jesus. It's all I exist for, right? God saved them from Egypt when they were in bondage. Why? Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet He saved them for His namesake that He might make known His power. Now, if you don't like that, you've got to change. You've got to change. You've got to be born again. What about the restraining of his anger in the exile? So he sends his people back in the Old Testament into exile, but he doesn't wipe them out. Here's what Isaiah 48, 49 says. I think Isaiah 48, 9 to 11 is the most dense text in the Bible about the God-centeredness of God. If you're like, which one is it? It's this. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. Six hammer blows of God's God-centeredness. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. You love it or you hate it. You leap for joy at God's passion for His glory, or you don't. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did God send him? Here's Romans 15, 9. He became a servant to the circumcised to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles, that's most of you, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's why he came so that sinners in all the peoples of the world could enjoy glorifying God for His mercy. One more text. Why is He coming back again? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Now make sure you hear this right, because I think we, we sanitize these sentences with me-centeredness by failing to hear, this is His purpose. Like, this is not your purpose, this is His purpose. It ought to be your purpose, but in this text it's His purpose. He comes on that day with this purpose, to be glorified in His saints, to be marveled at in all who have believed. He's going to descend with the clouds, lightning flashing from horizon to horizon. His people will rise to meet Him in the air as He comes and His purpose will be, marvel at me. Is that okay? Or is that egomania? Okay, those are the texts just to taste. All of redemptive history is bookended.
beginning to end, bookended with this purpose. In the beginning, even before the beginning in predestination and election, this was God's purpose that his glory be praised and in the end that he be marveled at forever and ever. That's the purpose from beginning to end and in the middle as well where the cross stands as the mighty center. And at those three points, so this, this is what the rest of the message is in the minutes that remain. How in those three moments of eternally, eternity past and eternity future and then the center will end on in the cross. How in those three interventions of God, plan of God, does the egomania of God be resolved from sin to love? How's that work? So when I speak of the beginning, I'm thinking of before creation. And if, if you like big words, you could say predestination, consummation, propitiation. <laughs> if you don't like big words, I'll try to explain when we get there. <laughs> Let's consider the beginning. Here's Ephesians 4, 1. I'm just say Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. God chose us in Christ. So there's election. God chose us, his people, in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined. That's that big word, predestination. That's in the Bible. I remember I just talked to a young woman one time when, and she said, that's a Presbyterian word. That's it. What? I'm a Baptist. I just read my Bible. That's what Baptists do. They read their Bible. <laughs> In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here's the, the phrase that just knocked me off my horse in, in, when I was 23 unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So election, predestination, redemption, adoption. Those are all there in those two verses. And the goal is unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So before the foundation of the world, God planned that he would be praised. That was the goal. A people praising the glory of his grace. So from the very beginning, we see God made his exaltation and my salvation one. That's the amazing thing because of that word grace, right? The glory of his grace. So we think, huh. So He's getting praise, and he insists that he get praise, but what he's getting praise for is that he is the kind of God whose glory, beauty, greatness, value is most consummately manifest in the overflow of grace to sinners. You go, huh. So maybe egomania 
namely his pursuit of praise, isn't as bad news as I thought it was. Your joy comes to its climax, its, its highest point in the overflow of praise to grace, which means that your joy is in that moment magnifying the value of the glory of grace, which means that God is being exalted in your happiness in God. C.S. Lewis was a key player in helping me break through to this. Here's what he said uh, about his stumbling over God's craving compliments. Like, praise me. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed cannot help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I remember reading that. And standing in the library at Fuller Seminary thinking, this is amazing. So I, I you know, pick up a New Yorker magazine. I always went when the New Yorker magazine arrived and they had the mag magazine sections in the library. I'd go there for the jokes, the cartoons. They were just awesome, these, these cartoons in New Yorker. And I'd flip through, and when I'd see one that made me laugh, you couldn't laugh out loud in the library, it was very frustrating. I would, I would look around, where is somebody that I can show this to? What was that? Remember, 15 years old, I'm sitting there watching some comedian on television, eating my Wheaties at night, and my, he would say something absolutely strange me funny. I mean, I'm roaring with laughter. And out of my mouth goes, Mama, Mama, come here. My dad's on the road. She's the only one home. My sister's out with somebody. Mama, come here. Listen to this. Why, why, would, I do, why would I do that? Because praise, appreciation, delight is the consummation of the enjoyment. I want somebody else to look at this with me. You're standing at a sunrise, like Jonathan said this morning, looking out over those mountains, and, and the sun comes up, and you want to say, isn't that beautiful? There's nobody there to say it to you. You say, God, that's beautiful, that's good. But we, we want to praise. And, and Lewis gave me the breakthrough. The reason you want to praise is because praise is not some kind of little add-on to the joy. It's the finishing of the joy, the completion of the joy. The joy is not complete and full until it is spilling over in adoration to the thing you're enjoying. You all do this. Just analyze what you love, right? You all talk about food this way. You talk about sports this way. You talk about movies this way. You, you, you get pleasure 
from finishing the enjoyment with talking with others about how good that is. That's what you do. Therefore, he's saying, why was I denying to God the very thing I do with everything else, namely the consummation of my own happiness in praising the most valuable thing in the universe, the glory of God. So if Jesus wants you to have the greatest, longest happiness, what would he give you for your enjoyment? He would give you the most uh, beautiful, admirable, satisfying reality, and that's himself. In Christ, whose death made that possible. That's what Jesus prayed for. So just shifting focus for a moment toward the end of history. So predestination way back there was destined for the praise of the glory of God. And now what about the future? Jesus prayed like this at the end of his great prayer in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now, you can imagine what Brad Pitt would say to that, right? Or Oprah Winfrey. Good grief, he's so into himself. He is. Let me read it again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And you gotta ask, is that egomania or is that love? He's, he's asking his father to bring you to an eternal place of seeing him, his glory. I want them to see me. I want them to see me in my glory. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God promises that as we come to him, what we're going to find there is an all-satisfying glory, full and forever. What's the world offering you, right? I mean, at best, the world will offer you about 80 years of pleasure and then hell. Not a deal. That's not a deal. God offers 80 years of affliction, that's what President Rigney was saying, which we take really seriously. 80 years of trouble. In the world you will have trouble. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You get 80 million ages of happiness. If, if. You will own me and see in me the all-satisfying glory that I am. So when all is said and done, the history of the world is complete, new heavens and new earth are established, infinite joy in the age to come has arrived, the ultimate joy, the ultimate climax of history and our aching hearts will be, we see his glory. We are transformed 
to be the kind of people who can enjoy his glory with the very energy with which God enjoys his own glory. So when Jesus says, love me more than you love your mother, your father, your son, or your daughter, he's not hurting anyone. He's saying this, if you find your ultimate joy in your most cherished earthly treasure, you're going to be disappointed and I'm going to be dishonored because you chose that over me. I'm offering myself to you as the all-satisfying beauty, greatness, wisdom, strength, love of the universe. Nothing better than me out there. Nothing. That's true. And I'm telling you that if you see this, if you see me as your supreme treasure, then you don't have to choose. In fact, you dare not choose between your satisfaction and my glorification. You dare not choose. Because in the very act of your being satisfied in me, I'm glorified in you. That's the way he set it up. That is the ultimate resolution of the problem of egomania. But there, there's one last problem. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We don't deserve any help from God at all. And how does God resolve the problem of our being sinfully deserving of hell and God's purpose to be praised joyfully by us in heaven? How does he resolve that? And the answer is he resolves it in the cross and in the very act of resolving it, we see the greatest moment of God's self-exaltation and the greatest moment of our happiness. Let me read it to you. This is maybe the most important paragraph in the Bible. It runs neck and neck with a few others in my mind, but I would argue it's right near the top of the most important words in the Bible. It goes like this. This is Romans 3, 23 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin falls short of glory. That's what sin is. A We'll be back to that. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that last big word, meaning the removal of the wrath of God. You propitiate someone by taking their anger away by an appropriate act. So this is the act of death, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There you go. So what, what was the cross about? I'm going to show my righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of Him who has faith in Jesus. So here's the argument. What happened? Christ is put forward. The Father sends the Son to die as a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice. He dies. Why did He do it that way? <laughs> Why did He do it that way? I mean, just, just forgive for goodness sake. You don't need to kill anybody. 
Why did he do it that way? Verse 25, middle of the verse, this was to show God's righteousness. Well, why did he need to show his righteousness? I mean, you're righteous. Why do you need to show your righteousness? End of the verse, verse 25. Because, he's just answering our questions one after the other, because in his divine patience he passed over former sins. You got to pause there and say, why is that a problem? I mean, sinners expect God to pass over their sins. That's what Americans do. We don't expect wrath. We expect people, God to pass. God is merciful. He's kind. He passes over sins. And Paul says, that's the biggest problem in the world that God passes over sins. Because it makes him look unjust. Why is that? I mean, sins like raping Bathsheba, David, killing her husband. I mean, picture yourself as Bathsheba's dad. Uriah's mom. And he gets away with it. Nathan just says, your sin is taken away. You can keep on being king. And I mean, there they are at home saying, he killed, he killed my son. He killed my son. He raped my daughter. And he just gets away with it. That's unrighteous. And it looks like God approves of it when he passes over it. That's the issue. I mean, if you think your sin is a little thing, you don't get it at all. It's not a little thing. Paul says it's the biggest problem to be solved in the world. How can God be righteous and pass over that? I mean, picture yourself as a judge in Hennepin County in Minneapolis. And the judge just says to the rapist and the murderer, it's okay, you can go. Everybody in the courtroom would say, you don't belong on a bench. You are not a good judge. And that's what Paul feels is being said about God. And he would be. It would be. That's what's at stake on the cross. Why does passing over sins make God look unrighteous? Because of verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? Falling short means, in this case, interpreted by chapter 1, verse 23, I'm exchanging the glory of God for created things. Like, I have a choice in front of me, and I can do this because that's precious to me and valuable to me and pleasurable to me, or I can love the glory of God and escape from that. And if I do this, I make His glory look little, small, insignificant, worthless, which is unrighteous of me, and if God were to approve it, which it would look like he's doing if he just passes over it, which he does for all of you justified young people, he would be unrighteous. So how does God solve this problem? He solves it by sending Christ to die. How does that work? When the infinitely valuable Son of God dies to vindicate the righteousness of God who is passing over God-belittling sins. He shows how much valuable, how much value that righteousness, that God, that glory has. If it takes this much 
pain, this much dishonor, this much disrespect for Jesus, the most valuable person in the world, to suffer in order to vindicate the value of the glory of God that I've been trampling under my feet all my life by loving other things more, then we now see how valuable the glory of God is. If you live in God-belittling sins, there's hell to pay or blood to pay. And the gospel is that blood was paid so that hell wouldn't have to be paid to vindicate the worth of the glory of God. So, summing up, from beginning to end, to predestination, back there in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, and consummation in John 17, 24, and propitiation here in Romans 3, 23 to 26. In those three places, as well as many others, we see the resolution of the problem of the egomania of God and of Jesus. The vindication of the righteousness of God. So here's, here's the summary. The greatest news in the world is that in the death of Christ, God has made a way for His glory to be exalted and my sins to be forgiven in the very same act. God ultimately glorified in us and we ultimately satisfied in Him. They happen together and they are grounded in the cross. So here's the end of the matter. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not an act of a needy ego. Let me say that again. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy, craving ego. It's an act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our praise is not because He wouldn't be fully God without it, but that you won't be fully happy until you give it. That's not arrogance, young people. That's grace. That's not egomania. That is love. So Father, I pray for these friends that if any of them feels anger or resentment or even just perplexity over your pervasive God-centeredness and Christ's pervasive self-exaltation, that you would help them. You are a patient God. You are a merciful God that you would help them get the breakthrough before it's too late. That they might not just tolerate, but rejoice in all those passages that say, we were created for your glory. This is our joy. This is your glorification. Make that plain, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.